Hey, Troy here. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up that this episode is a deep dive into some reporting that Taproot Edmonton did about the EEDC and their plans for the new innovation hub. So head on over to taprootedmonton.ca slash stories and read all about it. If you don't read the story before listening to the episode, you're probably not going to get much out of this episode. Or you might just enjoy hearing our voices. Really, it's your call. But the right call is to read the story at taprootedmonton.ca slash stories. On with the show. This week, it's the juicy new Mel Innovation Hub. And now for something completely different. Taproot Edmonton published a story this week about the EEDC's plan to open a new innovation hub downtown. We're going to talk with the author and editor of the piece. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 11, and we're going to jump into the rapid fire segment. If our voices sound a little bit different this week, it's because we're in the Norquest, what is it, Innovation Studio? Innovation Studio. We got the nice little acoustically treated room with a big table and four mics, and why there are four? We'll get to that in a second. But first, rapid fire. We're recording this episode cruelly on October 16th, one year after Edmonton City Council elected four new councillors and started new terms with the other nine. I was not one of those counselors as I suffered a crushingly embarrassing defeat. Uh, But hey, I have a podcast now. Uh, Do any of the sitting city counselors have a podcast? Didn't think so. Monday morning, the funicular went down for emergency maintenance without any signs or updates on the status website to signal to users that they might need a detour. This was not a concern for city officials who believe it actually exceeded the city's standard for signaling set by the metro line. And again, we're recording this on October 16th, so the dank haze hasn't quite yet descended on Edmonton. I'll update this in post to let you know that legalization went very, very... Very uneventfully. Not a single person died. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And this week, we're going to be talking about the Edmonton Community Foundation. The Edmonton Community Foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org, and be sure to check out the Well Endowed podcast while you're there. So I mentioned we're at a table with four mics today. What could we possibly do with that? We're actually joined by two guests on the podcast this week, uh, Eliza Barlow, who wrote the aforementioned piece about the EDC's Innovation Hub. Eliza, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful to have you here. I'm great. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Therese Keller, who was the editor of the piece. Thank you for having us here today. Uh, We're glad to have you. So, Mac, you're the Taproot Edmonton guru, your co-founder, I suppose. What was this piece all about and what prompted it? That's a fact, co-founder. So uh, the State of the City Address, Mayor Iveson in May, spoke about pipelines. And in particular, he spoke about the innovation pipeline. Uh, A quote from his speech says, Let's actively shape Edmonton's economic future by leveraging our local tech talent to help make our established companies become as competitive and innovative as they can be. And he, in his speech, championed the idea of an innovation hub, which he called a collision point of matchmaking between problems and solutions, and would serve as a key part of this idea of an innovation corridor that he was talking about that would link all of our different innovation assets together. You're going to hear us say innovation a lot in this episode, and for that I apologize. Uh, Also in May, Council asked for a report on innovation corridors, and in June they asked for a report on the findings of the Startup Genome Report that EEDC had commissioned to evaluate the startup community. 
Now, over the summer, we had started working on a story about the proposed innovation hub at Taproot. And in mid-August, EDC made those plans public when they held a public consultation of sorts at Startup Edmonton. And that's where people found out that there was this notion that Startup Edmonton might move out of the Mercer warehouse and into this new building. So everything came to a a head on Monday when those reports came back to executive committee alongside some other reports that were a bit related. Uh, And we published our story on Monday as well. So it was a very busy innovation day at council. Uh, Before we talk to Eliza and Teresa, I just want to highlight a few of the things that were said at committee. So as he's done previously, notably with Hangar 11, Mayor Iveson was on the lookout for Nate, it seemed. Um, he said, I wanted to make sure that the nation's leading polytechnic wasn't left out of the discussion, and kind of said that in reference to why he brought up this idea of an innovation corridor in the first place. ErisMD, which is a local tech company developing AR products for, for medicinal purposes, for surgery, that kind of thing, uh, they had a number of people there to speak at council, and their CEO, Chandra Devam, was the most vocal, and she suggested that moving Startup Edmonton out of the Mercer warehouse wasn't just a slap in the face to Kelly and Devin Pope, who own the building. It was actually like murdering Santa Claus in front of children. That's a quote. That's a quote. Emotions were high at council. Uh, Later speakers in the afternoon were a little more measured. Airtrail CEO Bradley Poulet said starting a company is hard, and Edmonton's current innovation ecosystem makes it harder. He had some suggestions on how the city might spend its innovation money. Instead of on a new building, he mentioned things like living expense grants, free office space, and salaries for founders for the first few months of their projects. So council heard loud and clear that the entrepreneur community is unhappy with the way things are at the moment. So... In this episode, we're going to talk with Eliza Barlow, who wrote the Taproot story, and Therese Keller, who edited it along the way. And we're going to talk about what they learned, the process, and what this all means. It's going to be an exciting episode. So I mentioned the State of the City Address as the starting point. That was kind of May of this year. But what did you guys find out? When when did this actually start? Because in the story, you referenced some dates way back in 2017. My sense of it was that everything kind of started in the summer of 2017 when a consultant was hired to um, consult with a large number of uh, kind of players within the um, innovation community or in the tech community. Yeah, kind of picking their brains about, you know, how can we kind of get the startup community going again. So that culminated in a report, right, that was published or written by EDC, but internal confidential report. It was um, so the process of working with Eliza. She was on the front end doing doing the digging, um, working working with her sources and getting access to a lot of these documents, which was um, like outstanding reporting work. the 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 blue sky document. This is the one that was that came out um, late late. 2017, late 2017. This was the one written by Brad Ferguson, correct? Yeah, correct. Yes. So it was, to me, this was a, it was a fascinating document because it, it really gets inside the head of where EEDC, you know, being guided kind of by this consultant, the consultant is talking to um, so many heavy hitters, would, would you say, Eliza? Like lots of, lots of people within the Edmonton tech uh, and innovation community um, just not a whole lot of them who are currently with startup. Mm-hmm. I, is that uh, just a few days before the story came out, Chris Lum from Tech Edmonton called, and I chatted to him a little bit, and he said, "Yeah, you know what? It was um, the consultation process was kind of biased toward um, people who had been there and done that." And he used the word biased, and you know, yeah. So I th- and I, I think that was the intention the entire time was that 
let's talk to people who have started a business and kind of gone through, jumped through a few hoops already and may, might be in the scale up phase or, or beyond. With the idea, of course, too, and, and, I, and I believe, I believe that EEDC was, the heart was in the right spot, that they, that they were trying to create a better ecosystem for startups to grow, for um, new companies to grow. I, th- I think that they saw maybe a duplication of work, um, maybe confusing paths to getting information. I think that there's a genuine uh, a desire there to clean some of that up. Um, the result, though, kind of the of their list of recommendations, the one that really sparked the fire mm-hmm. was the the building. And this was yeah. th- this was sort of the focus of your story, then, right? This idea mm-hmm. that EDC, well intentioned, going down this path, taking these actions to try to diversify the economy, ultimately, you know, bring innovation yeah. to the level that we'd like it to be in Edmonton, and then the community reacted. Poorly, let's say, to the idea of moving at least the stuff out of Mercer Warehouse into a new building. So that's, is that kind of the tension that the story focuses on? Absolutely. Yes. So give us the executive summary then. It's a long piece. It's a well-researched, in-depth piece. But for those of you who don't like to read the whole thing, give us the overview. My understanding and kind of where I jumped into the story was the August 16th meeting that you talked about when a lot of the... um, and it was a it was a presentation at the Mercer Warehouse by Cheryl Watson, the vice president of Innovate Edmonton. And that is my understanding of where a lot of the startups actually found out about the plans. A couple of people I talked to said they'd kind of heard rumors or, um, you know, scuttlebutt around. But <clears throat> this was a big presentation. It's like, okay, this is our plan for what we're going to do. And in my story, um, Ashlyn Bernier said that at that point, it, it kind of seemed like the plan was already baked. And I think her quote was that the train had left the station. And so she and a couple of other people described this atmosphere of kind of shock and confusion at that meeting. Um, So that's kind of what I started the story with. And I kind of went from there. Often in journalism, you want when you're starting to do a story, you want a villain. Right. You want the bad guy because those stories are the protagonist and the antagonist. Exactly. Those stories are easy to write. They you know, once you have the information, they almost write themselves. In this case, I struggled with that there wasn't a villain, but what there was and and as you just said, there's the tension, right? There mm-hmm. was um, a very inelegantly proposed solution to a problem that a lot of people perhaps hadn't realized was being considered a problem. So suddenly they're fixing something. Shoot, but we're doing good, they mm-hmm. said. So, yeah, and I, I think um, quite a few of the startups that I talked to agreed that, yes, there is this plateau that EEDC had identified. And that was one of the really interesting parts about the confidential report was that near the beginning, there was kind of this really bleak picture of kind of this like stalling of activity and, you know, a lack of venture capital. And, you know, there's like a growing machine had stopped growing. Yeah, there was a very long list to illustrate this plateau. And the, the startup people that I talked to, they they didn't deny that there was this plateau. But I guess they just really disagreed with EEDC on the right way to fix it. Right. So they had other ideas as opposed to a building for what yeah. EEDC might spend its money on, let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I've been to the Mercer Warehouse in Startup Edmonton. When Mac told me about this, it was probably three months ago when he's like, I've got this thing percolating. I'm like, what? Startup Edmonton moving out of the Mercer? That's like rocking my worldview, which I imagine people actually working, co-working out of Startup Edmonton that was the same thing. It was shocking them to the core. Why is 
what is the problem that this is purporting to solve? Mm. At council, actually, uh, sorry, at council yesterday, a bunch of people said exactly that. They're like, when you're innovating, you're identifying a problem and you're coming up with a solution for it. In this case, it feels like there's a solution, but no problem. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as as recently as maybe a week or two ago, I was talking to somebody and and he said that, yeah, there's some people there that are really upset. So they were feeling maybe a little bit betrayed at the idea that their community was about to be moved. Um, But as you say, they're busy, they're working on their startups, they've got other things to do, but enough of them felt enough passion about this to write a letter, right? And that happened during the course of your reporting? Yeah, I can't remember. Um, It was probably right about the time I started working on this story. There was this three-page, quite strongly worded letter, um, and it was, I I think Mayor Iveson was the first addressee on it. So Derek Hudson, Cheryl Watson, um, Ryan Kelly of the mayor's office, and Tiffany Link Boyko. Is it yep. Link Linky or Linky Boyko? Yeah. Linky Boyko. So yeah, it was a it was a quite strongly worded letter, and it was signed by sixteen members of the startup community. I think you would say. So these are founders, people Fi- that are founders, um, early employees at CEOs, startups, CEOs, COOs. Right. The groups kind of start by saying maybe a ball has been dropped. And I found this to be super interesting that 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 was really where they started their letter. You know, it's like we're a community of builders and it's quite possible we got very busy building our businesses instead of continuing to build the community. But we want to remedy that. We want to get back a seat at the table. Um, and, and I really appreciated that kind of um, very, that was a really raw and honest statement that they started with. And then from there, they carried on through their letter to say, but here you've given us this solution to this problem that, you know, the, the two are not meeting. You've proposed this solution of a building and we can see other problems that need to be solved. So the letter was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a great place for this for this story to start because it again it kind of goes back to identifying that tension between EEDC and and startup. I mean, at the time when I came into the story, I really was unaware that startup was startup Edmonton was under the 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 umbrella of EEDC. It's really funny you mentioned that because in Slack earlier today I sent a excerpt from your story to Mac and I'm like, hey, um not to say you're bad at fact checking, but this says Startup Edmonton is under EEDC. That's not right. And he's like, well, actually, no. <laughs> yeah, no, it was sold to EEDC in 2014. Full yeah. disclosure, I was a member of the Startup Edmonton board at the time uh, when that happened. Um, but maybe that's an interesting distinction to make because there's Startup Edmonton, which is now a division or a unit of EEDC, and then there's the startups. Yeah. And they don't all necessarily agree either. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and that was that was a challenging part of the story is that they're not kind of this like homogeneous um, group. Is it, do you think maybe, and maybe this is me reading into the situation a little bit, that, you know, as you say, those startup founders were building their businesses, not paying attention to the ecosystem, maybe because they thought Startup Edmonton was doing that, looking after it for them? I think one of the first persons, first people I talked to, Michael Wilson, the CEO of Drug Bank, that's exactly what he said. Mm. He said, you know what? And it was a bit of a mea culpa. And it, it was, um, we've been so busy. And I think he said, heads down, working on our businesses that guess what? Maybe we weren't paying enough attention to what was going on around us. And uh, then he said they want to, you know, now that they have a chance to jump in, they want to stick their noses into the process and have a bit bit more of a say. Get their elbows back on the table. Good for them. Right. Yeah. 
So we'll come back to this advisory council that's been proposed. But first, let's just dig into the building itself a little bit. There's sort of two concepts at play. The fact that EDC wants to have a building for an innovation hub, and then the particular former Enbridge Center on 103. And it sort of seemed we had the same sort of discussions with Rogers Place and the selection of Rogers Place, where it really seemed like city officials knew what they wanted, and perhaps engineered some process to get them the result that they wanted. Am I out of left field here? In your reporting, did you find anything that this was a choice that was made, or? Um, well, oh, sneaky <laughs> questioning. <laughs> I can only really speak to the uh, the facts that I found out on that. Um, Once you give me the facts, I can make any basis thing <laughs> I want. Well, yeah, and so what I know is that, as I kind of started rambling about earlier, was that on in November of 2017, I have some notes from a feedback session, and that's the first place when I kind of started to see um, the idea of a physical location, uh, people suggesting that a space was needed. But by the time of the confidential report um, in late 2017, and again, I don't have the exact date, the 103rd Street Center showed up in that one. And there, there was an RFP at some point. People keep talking about an RFP, right? And you found this. You got a copy of this mm-hmm. RFP. So in late, seven, late 2017, the um, report written by Brad Ferguson mentioned the 103rd Street Center as part of this big strategy. And just as a side note, the uh, uh, Dan, Dan St. Pierre, the manager of corporate communications for EEDC, um, did confirm to me that that report is legit. Right. And that it was written by Brad, but that was kind of just... Some ideas that were being thrown out, I think he described it as, and that it's not now an accurate picture of their plan. But anyway. And I think that that's fair, right? Because plans evolve as they should, right? You do some research and then you continue to fine tune. And of course, things get written down. And I think that, and and it was a distinction that I'm very glad we made in the story that Mm -hmm. this was a, a set of thinking at a particular point in time. And EDC says that it has evolved. It has moved on. But the building stayed the same. Right. Yeah, whether it was just a snapshot at a moment in time or not, um, and I have no reason to doubt that, 103rd Street Center was mentioned in that report. So that's just there in black and white. Right. In reading this report and reading the Brad Ferguson report and doing some of your reporting, did you get a better sense of why the EDC is pushing so hard for this innovation hub in a building concept? Why the building is so important to the EEDC when it doesn't seem to be that important to the startup community. Well, so when I I interviewed Cheryl Watson about this at EEDC headquarters um, on uh, September 24th, and she talked about the fact that in the Mercer warehouse, once once the companies reach a certain size, they kind of had no choice but to move out. So they leave. And um, the idea that she she did present to me was that this might give an opportunity for businesses at all different stages of growing their business to be together under one roof. Um, and it would also have a big kind of storefront feel reaching out onto the street, like as you're walking by. I remember she mentioned that to kind of draw people in and, oh, hey, you know, what's this? And I want to jump in on the, the, the staying in place or aging in place, if we can use that, borrow that phrase for the yeah. innovation ecosystem. At council yesterday, a number of the people that spoke uh, to executive committee about this were we're talking about the walking dead. And Councillor Nickel actually brought this up as well. It's this idea that uh, a service provider or an incubator will support a company well beyond the life at which that company should have died because it's not making it. It's a failure. We should let it die and, and make space for something else, right? Which is maybe one of the good things about the way startup or the Mercer Warehouse works currently that 
wouldn't work in this new hub. So a number of people spoke about that yesterday Mm -hmm. on Monday. And um, Cheryl also mentioned that there are a few problems with the Mercer in terms of um, reliable Wi-Fi and things like that. But the Popes never returned my uh, request for comment, so... I don't know about that. They were both at council yesterday. The Popes are the owners of the Mercer building. Right. Mm -hmm. And just on that, um, there was several references, including uh, in your interview with uh, Mayor Iveson, as well as within uh, some of the the documents from EEDC, where they said they would ensure that the Mercer wasn't left hanging, right? They Mm -hmm. would ensure that that the Popes weren't, you know, suddenly faced with no income coming in. And as best as, now I think I asked you this question, um, EEDC would have the lease on the space at Mercer. And if they don't fill that space, now you're paying leases potentially in two places, right? So if you've moved your startup Edmonton into uh, 103 Street, it would be to EEDCs and the city's advantage to fill up the space at the Mercer. But I could see a risk where it's like, oh my gosh, you're going to have space galore in two separate buildings and as you're moving people from one to the next and paying the lease on both. I wonder if a lot of this discussion about the particular building is sort of missing the forest because you're looking at a particular tree because you have, for example, Bioware used to be on Gateway Boulevard or Calgary Trail and is now downtown. Everyone is already moving downtown. We already have an innovation district, I would say, and Startup Edmond has been an integral part, but in terms of like interacting with people, you can still go for lunch if someone's a block away. They don't literally need to be in the same cube farm as Just you. come to Credo. I'm there all the time. You run into me anytime <laughs> you like. Do you get that sort of sense from any of the startups you talk to and any of the people that like maybe this particular building wasn't so important because they already have this collision that it's purporting to solve? Yeah, I think I did get that sense. Um, from Don Iveson, without a doubt, the interview that uh, you did with him, that was absolutely mm-hmm. what he said. I mean, it was at one point he thought, yeah, building, because a building is shiny and it is, you know. It's, you can cut a ribbon and, you know, all you those politically advantageous things. And, yeah. and as the, you know, some of the uh, Innovation Corridor reports to, to council certainly point to some similar kind of things. But no, his interview to you was very much... Yeah, at one point, maybe it was a good idea, but is it necessary? And I think, uh, was it, did you tweet it uh, yesterday, the the Amy DeepMind thing? Yeah, so at, at the executive committee, uh, Mayor Iveson referenced that, you know, he brought it up maybe in, initially because he didn't want Nate to get left out. And then later he said, you know, if the idea was to get Amy, the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute, and DeepMind, which is Google's AI research lab, uh in the same space as a bunch of entrepreneurs and students and other things. And he said, that ship has sailed, I think was his quote, um, which was really interesting for him to say at council because we know, as you, as you say, Troy, Amy and DeepMind are moving downtown or have moved downtown. Um, there's already a good hub of activity that is downtown. And, you know, I'm personally not convinced that you need to be in the same physical building as long as there's that proximity. Uh, maybe that can accomplish the same thing. So it was interesting that he said that, you know, maybe that was the reason they started this. And then, it, you know, plans evolve and Amy moved and DeepMind moved and Borealis is down there with RBC. Uh, they don't need a different building. They're already mm-hmm. in a building downtown. I, I did think it was interesting, though. And, um, you know, as, as, re- as recently as May, he was championing quote, championing the idea of the innovation hub. And right. 
then by October, he's agnostic about it. So Amazing what can happen when you get in front of a room of 75 startup people and feel the heat. I wanted to know if there was anything in the, the story that was really surprising to you, because at, at this point, it's a story that the whole thing was surprising to me, but you've been down in the weeds. Were you ever doing some research and then you discovered something that really shocked you? So uh, there's uh, there's two things. So the when I interviewed Cheryl and we talked about the RFP, she said that it um, they'd put in an RFP in February 2018. And I had said in the interview, and was it public? And she had indicated that, yes, it was. Um, and I'd been looking on all these, any kind of RFP site that I could find, like RFP.com or whatever. I can't remember what Alberta they're called. Alberta Purchasing Connection. There's places yeah, where RFPs RFP. get posted. Yeah, RFP.ca or like, yeah. And, um, I couldn't find anything and I'd been searching like every iteration of EEDC that I could think of. And and then she mentioned that the RF, RFP had been put out by a company called CBRE Limited, who they brought in to handle the RFP when they decided, I guess after they decided that they actually wanted to pursue a building, they brought CR, CBRE in. So after the interview, I had sent some follow-up questions to EEDC and I said like, hey, you know, uh, can't find this RFP. They're like, well, you'd have to ask CBRE because they're the ones that issued it. Quite soon after that, I phoned CBRE and I got a call back from Al Manon. I think his title was is senior vice president. And I said, hey, like, you know, I was told you guys handled the RFP. Um, I haven't been able to find it. He's like, well, you're not going to find it. He's like, but, you know, that's all I'm going to say for now because I'm going to talk to Cheryl. And I was like, oh, OK, well, it's kind of strange. Kind of strange. Yeah, but but then a few, a few days later, he phoned me back and I was quite a little bit pleasantly surprised and very candidly talked to me all about the RFP process and that it would be rare in this in this instance to post it on one of those public sites because it was the criteria was so specific that it would just kind of be weird to blanket post it in the public. And so he described the RFP process for me. And so they weren't looking for anyone to apply. They had specific people in mind or? Uh, well, they had a, a, they had a specific set of criteria, like EEDC had a specific set of criteria that they wanted for the building. And then um, the CBRE team, is, it's my understanding that they went out, they then went out and picked about picked out eight buildings that could be possibilities. Um, and then they went back to EEDC with four. No, sorry. No, they, they came back with eight. Um, and somehow it was narrowed down to four. And the four that I kind of think of as the shortlist, although they never, they never used that term. Right. Um, they were all invited to submit proposals and all of them did. And then um, Cheryl and the CBRE people, and she mentioned two other people, I can't remember, I think it was Derek and one other person, ranked them all, and 103rd Street emerged as the winner. So when, on October 2nd, EEDC sent uh, a news release, and they referenced, they, they included a fact sheet, so the news release was on, you know, that they've uh, entered into a 90-day uh, lease agreement with, with Enbridge Placer, 103 Street Centre, that's a bit of a tongue twister. It that. is. 103 Street Center. Okay. Um, so they've entered into this 90 day. And during that period, they they stated that it satisfied um, the criteria for cost, for building management, for location, and for space. So they put that out there in their press release. What was interesting to me, and so getting into the surprises, and this was uh, Al, how do you say his name? Menon. Men- Menon. I think. Menon. Yeah. Um, where he was quite frank with Eliza in his interview. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, uh, he told Eliza, they, being EEDC, said, this could be an option, but we really need to do the process the right way. And and Al said, sorry, am I getting his first name correct? Yep. 
great. They had to go into it with a completely blank slate. Those were those were very strong quotes because it it spoke to EEDC's predetermination that they really liked this 103 Street Center for their reasons. Um, they did go through a process. They narrowed it down to you know four four buildings, which sent in an RFP, and and 103 Street Center came ahead based on the criteria that they outlined, right? So yeah, and I but I think your question was what surprised me, and I think what I wanted to say was like the RFP it's, thing itself didn't really surprise me, but it it did kind of surprise me how candid they were to. To kind of tell me all about it because I know that's something that a lot of people in the community have been have been wondering about like well was there an RFP and where was it and it's like oh well all I had to do was ask and they phoned me back <laughs> well certainly the people that spoke at council were were talking about it, it was referenced a few times by speakers at the yeah. exec and, committee yeah so if I can just continue that um so after I had that conversation with Al and answered all all the questions I could think of and I said well, okay well you know can I get a copy of it um you know like a copy of it yeah, well, you know, they each one was kind of different because they they were all sent to the individual buildings. There wasn't just this one thing that went out. I was like, okay. He's like, yeah, but you know, kind of like maybe. And I was like, oh, okay. And then so I kind of went on went on doing other things. And I think about a week later, or maybe even longer, um, suddenly an email came in with the RFP there from him. So I was like, wow. <laughs> and just kind of that. I mean, that whole thing kind of surprised me because I had gone into it kind of thinking like, oh, this RFP is this like really big mysterious thing and. A unicorn. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And then so there it was. So what do you think about that, Troy? I mean, the cynic in me thinks this whole thing sounds like they purchased a very competent laundromat to uh, effectively launder their RFP <laughs> process and make sure that they got the right selection. The journalists are all cringing and <laughs> saying, we don't want to comment on the record, but I will. I'll I'll say that, you know, it, it wouldn't be the first time that the city has engineered a process to suit their results. And even if they found a trustworthy company that was very forthcoming, mm -hmm. they, it and doesn't yeah, look good, whether you, you know, whether they were nice to me or not, the, the fact is that in late, late 2017, there was a report saying 103rd Street Center, and they went through this whole process and then came back with 103rd Street Center. So Surprise. that's just the facts. <laughs> I mean, you know. And I mean, at some point, you have to think there was the process that narrowed it down to eight, then four. Uh, what? A, how many of those criterion were the numbers in the name have to add up to four? Uh, you know, <laughs> if they can add any arbitrary number of criterion that don't say 103 Street Center, but do say 103 Street Center. Yeah. And, um, and Al, Al Manon talked a lot about the fact that this was kind of a, um, a different one because the tenant would need to use a lot of the lobby, which I guess is traditionally kind of the domain of the landlord. Sure. Um, but they wanted to use or have like a substantial amount of the lobby for their own use. So that was kind of a sticking or, you know, made it different. Therese, anything else that surprised you going through all of this? I think, uh, you know, I think this, the thing that surprised me was um, we got up. There was a group called the Original 50. These were the, uh, it was more than 50, so counting. But um, <laughs> uh, these were tech. Uh, tech people and um, startup people. And so I, they sent a list of about 26 or so who had agreed that they were fine allowing their names to be shared to us. I don't know. I don't know people. I don't, this is not my community. Sure. So I did what we all do when you don't know things is I Googled every single buddy. And so first of all, um, the, uh, 
I, I was I was basically in awe of some of some of the brilliant Edmonton entrepreneurs who um, are out there doing really cool stuff. So that was that was kind of my my surprise moment. Um, but also what a small community it is. Um, Eliza talked to a fellow named James Kirsted, who in, in the interview was um, speaking about a group called uh, Rainforest Alberta. And then um, in the process of the Google, well, didn't those two names just link up where James Kirsted, I think, was the Arctic Spa chair yeah. of, of, Rainforest. of Rainforest Alberta. <laughs> and so it was it was seeing these little links, um, the uh, Cam Link. Cam Linky, yeah. Linky and Ashlyn. So um, that that both of them, one of them popped up on the original fifty or more list, and the other one was uh, a very vocal, very strong, um, and uh, a, a proponent of startup Edmonton and remaining where they were in the Mercer. So I don't want to um, imagine the conversations in their household, but I bet some of them were interesting. Sure. So I think that was a surprise to me. Was just that. It's a community that I don't know. Um, it was fascinating to see a kind of the level of genius that exists out there, and and the people who are doing really cool stuff, um, and also how it how small it is. We're close to wrapping up, and we need to talk about going forward because this is sort of all still on the table. Executive committee is debating it. Mac. Lead us through what's going to happen here. Well, I'll start. I suppose uh, the very mo- the most immediate thing is that executive committee didn't finish, as you say. So this is going to go to council next week, uh, where they'll continue to hear about the reports. They'll get to hear from EEDC, who did not have an opportunity at exec to kind of share their perspective and their side of the story. Uh, so that'll be very interesting. And one of the reports talks about this Edmonton Innovation Ecosystem Advisory Council. I, I think the first I heard about it was the... Um so there was the September 7th letter from the startups that we talked all about. Then there was the response from Cheryl. And then the th- kind of the third letter was, I think it was September 20th. And it was jointly signed by Cheryl and Ashlyn. The committee, to me, hasn't been very well explained yet. And that, right. honestly, if I had to come away with one thing about this committee, someone needs to to really lay out what it is that's that's going to happen. I think I have an, an idea in my head. I may have invented all of that. But um, that's kind of where I am. It didn't really surface a ton in the reporting of this story, would you say? Well, it, it kind of it, it kind of surfaced near the very end. To me, you know, it feels like an attempt by EDC and some of the people that wrote the letter to find common ground and try to figure out a way to move forward. Uh, back to that point about solutions in search of a problem, I'm not really sure that this advisory council is going to accomplish anything along that line, but uh, it at least means that they're all talking together, um, which is a positive step if it comes to pass and actually exist. Well, and one of your tweets that came up uh, when you were bravely listening to that long meeting was you mentioned, and this resonated with me so much, is every speaker who doesn't like something council does first spends their first three minutes complaining how they weren't consulted. I've listened to a lot of public hearings and council meetings and without fail, they will get to the mic, they've got five minutes, and as you say, the first three minutes are gone talking about how they weren't consulting. What they really meant was they don't like the option that's on the table and they just don't get into their reasons why. And it happened again to a certain extent at exec committee. Um, It was a little bit different because the people that registered to speak spoke to multiple reports, so they had more than five minutes each. Um, But there was certainly an aspect of we were not consulted and that's what we're unhappy about. But then you ask them questions and what they're really unhappy about is 
the building is not what we need. There's other things that we need. And maybe it's true that the consultation, had it been better, would have got to those other things and we would have had a different solution on the table. But the fact remains, what they're really upset about is the building, not the fact that they weren't consulted. In a lot of ways, it looks like it was, you know, public relations uh being what it is, it, it looks like it just, it was a public relations exercise that blew up. Right. Um, EEDC, you know, you cannot consult with everybody. That doesn't get to happen. Um, but you need to be able to show that you've made an honest and big attempt to reach to your stakeholders, the people who are with you. And and it, it, it just seems as though somewhere in the process, things got... Things got split, things got fractured, and, and and that didn't work. The fact that this building, 103 Street Center, is sitting so plopped right in the middle of it. I mean, going forward, the building's just got to get off the books. They need to remove that from the discussion and start. Find a place where they can start, whether it's with their committee, whatever it is. Find a place to start and, and to... To, 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 be, to act as an organization with its stakeholders analyzing the problems, moving forward to a solution. So, It's really interesting you mentioned sort of like EEDC's quote-unquote duty to consult here because, you know, the advantage of EEDC is it's this wing of the city to, that operates as a business to give us more economic benefit. And part of the advantage of being a business is, you know, you don't have all this cumbersome government consultation and duty to consult this and that. It's funny that the uh, end result is the EDC not consulting with its stakeholders enough is the big blemish on its face. Uh, a little bit of potent irony there. Um, Mac, there's one sort of question I wanted to end with is last week you talked about Don Iveson's legacy mm-hmm. and how transit was his legacy. Oh, I said region. Well, you're right. I put transit in there because I want to hammer home that Don Iveson is not a good supporter of transit. Don <laughs> Iveson, if you're listening to this, got my eye on you. Um, so you said that the region was Don Iveson's legacy. I would say that this probably equally is what he's aiming for as a legacy as well. This and the health city stuff, I would say. Those are probably the three things that Iveson wants. So that probably is a lot of the reason why he's so vocal on this front and wanting to find a solution. What do you think council is going to look like next week with Don Iveson chairing with this item on the books? How forcefully do you think 103 is, 103 is going to disappear as an option and the building itself? I think the people that were at council, the councillors that were at the meeting, so the people on exec committee and the others that turned up heard loud and clear that the entrepreneurs in the room were unhappy with the way things were going. So I think that's going to give a lot of likelihood to the idea that we put a pause on the building. Uh, I think the health stuff and and the innovation stuff is actually really all related to the region. One of the reports that was at Exec Committee on Monday was about the regional economic diversification stuff that's gone on, uh, which we now have Edmonton Global for. And it's a shame that those were both put on the agenda at the same time because we really didn't get into that discussion. But, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs in the room were talking about branding and how, you know, they need to be the ones to close the deal, but EDC or somebody should be out in the global marketplace, you know, talking about the innovation that Edmonton could provide and kind of bringing people here and, and helping entrepreneurs get there so they can close those deals. Um, and I don't know that anyone that spoke to council yet on Monday actually 
knew that Edmonton Global was a thing. And there's this big discussion about what does EEDC do versus what does Edmonton Global do? So I, I do think it is all wrapped up in this idea of how do we get a, a metro region in Edmonton that is functioning really, really effectively. Economic development is one of the things that that region needs to do very, very effectively. And Edmonton Global is supposed to be, you know, the, the key player to take that forward. So it's a bit of a shame that the conversation got derailed by this building, because I think there's a bigger story here, too, around, you know, how does Mayor Iveson's regional legacy uh, play out? But to answer your question more specifically, yeah, I'd be surprised if we go forward with the building. So all that reporting just for it to go up in council smoke. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll say, no, this is a great idea. Let's do it. But there's certainly a lot of pushback right now. Well, Eliza, Therese, thanks for coming in and talking about it. Uh, everyone, I'm going to sit. You should have read the story already. I mean, you shouldn't have listened to the episode without reading the story first. But if you're at this point and you haven't read the story, go to taprootedmonton.ca and read the story. It's about, you know, a 10-minute read. It's got some beef in it, but it's... Or if you're vegetarian, it's got some Beyond Meat A&W stuff. It, it is a good read, is what I'm trying to say. That's all for today. Uh, we have to plug again that we're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and they do a lot of good things, the APN. Uh, one of the things they do is they empower local businesses and organizations to really get their message out there on podcasts like this one. Uh, and who wouldn't want me reading their ads? I never editorialize them at all. Uh, you can check out albertapodcastnetwork.com slash sponsorship to learn more about how you can get your message in front of thousands of local listeners, or in the case of speaking municipally, hundreds of thousands. We are the most listened to audio production in the city of Edmonton. That's not true. Oh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> but we're getting there. We will be, uh, probably sometime, maybe. We uh, will be. That's all for this week. Um, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, speaking Municipally. municipally.